Uh, for those of you who may not know who I am, uh, I'm Jason. I, I have the privilege of being on the pastoral team here. I spend most of my time in Chilliwack dealing with life groups and um, uh, connecting ministries and, and counseling and that kind of thing. And so um, I have the privilege of every once in a while coming out and preaching for Eldon. So, um, yeah. We are, we are going through a series here called The Greatest Story, and where we're, we're looking at the, the grand kind of narratives of the Bible, um, which we're kind of breaking into four sections, uh, the creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Um, and yes, Bill said, I, I drew the short straw, and I get to deal with the fall. So we'll, we'll see how this goes, if I can make you really depressed today or not. Um, before I start, though, um, what, well, or, yeah, um, so one of the things you should know is that um, uh, I, like, I, love, I love fishing. I've grown up fishing my entire life. Um, my, my grandfather has a, has a cabin up uh, kind of close to 100 Mile House on a, on a lake, and he's got a boat there. And so um, as kids, we would go and, and fish, and, and we dreamed of the days when we would be able to go on our own, where we didn't have to rely on the energy of my grandfather or, you know, the guidance of my dad. We could go, we could go on our own, right? Like, I'm just itching for the day that my dad would say, son, you're old enough. And my dad would have done that sooner, but my mom, not so much, right? My mom is, is, um, was very concerned. She wasn't comfortable on the water, and at this particular lake, just the way it's situated, the wind would come up and waves would come very quickly, and if you didn't know what you were doing, you could get yourself into a little bit of trouble. And so she was reticent to let us go on our own. So it was, I was the oldest, and I had my two younger brothers, and we were just every year, Mom, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? Can we go? No, she was not going to let that happen. Finally, finally, when I was 15, Mom finally said, okay, you can go, but you cannot go past where I can see you. So you can get in the boat, and as long as I can sit in the cabin in this chair, and I can look out the window, and I can see you out there, that's fine. We'll start there. I need to get comfortable. Great. I'm going to take anything. So we hop in the boat, and off we go, right? Now, being new in, uh, you know, you think it's easy, but there's a lot that goes into, you know, wind direction change and, you know, trying to keep track of what's going on. And so my mom... Uh, looks up, and what she sees is a boat floating out there with the prop up, me with my life jacket off, hanging in the water. My feet are over the edge. My brother's holding onto my feet, and I'm holding onto the back of the prop, trying, and, and she is like, oh no, my son is going to die. I, like, she came running down the stairs onto the dock, screaming across the water, everything okay, everything okay, everything okay. She thought, like, she thought everything was over. The, the, the reality, though, she just needed a little bit of context. See, she got distracted doing something and looked up at just the inopportune time. What really happened was my youngest brother just kind of lost track of where his rod was, 
And slowly it moved towards the prop. And the next thing you know, we have like a mile of wire stuck in the prop. And we wanted to save the lure. <laughs> right? A $6 lure took us like three hours. But there we are, floating like idiots in the water there. And I couldn't quite get around with the life jacket on, so I took the life jacket off. I was like, Tony, hold my feet because I need to hold on to this prop and get in there. I just couldn't quite reach it. I'm not a super tall guy. So here we are trying to just be, you know, good Mennonites, save the $6 lure and the wire there. And my mom thinks that the apocalypse is happening, right? It took a while after that for my mom to kind of let us go out again. No, 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 mom. No, no, it's okay. We figured it out. It's good. But what matters is context, isn't it? Doesn't it? Like if you would look at that, you would think disaster is happening. Nothing, nobody knows what's going on. But the, the people in the boat kind of do. I, I mean, as foolish as we are and the poor decisions that we make, at least, at least we knew what we were doing and we weren't panicked and it, it, was, it was okay. That's, that, that's sometimes similar to what happens when, when we open this up. I don't know about you, but there's been times in my in my spiritual walk as I've been growing with Jesus that I don't, I don't know what to do with this thing. And so there were times when I would just kind of, yeah, okay, let's read here. And then I would read and go, I'm sorry, he did what? No, 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 no. That, why, why would that be here? Like why in the world would you have a judge do that? Why do we need a detail of a left-handed judge who's going to kill a king who's so fat that the entire sword goes in? Like, this, this is weird, isn't it? Like, what am I reading? But then we just close it and be like, yeah, i done my duty, good, let's move along. Right? So co context matters. And, and that's why we're taking some time to kind of look at the big overarching picture of the Bible because we can see in creation, when God creates this world with purpose from chaos into something, that, that, he's, that he's saying something, that he created things with beauty and with usefulness, and then he creates man in his own image with, with a particular view and a particular goal. And so as we kind of go about the rest of Scripture, we can see, we can kind of see these threads of his creative power and his purposeful nature and his desire to see man flourish. We, we can open up any passage and we can see these things, either where it's deviated from that, or where, or where it's just showing this beauty of, of God and his creative work. And, and it seems so perfect. I mean, when we read the first two chapters of Genesis, we come to a place of being like, oh, man, I wish, I wish we were there. I mean, work without toil, perfect relationship with my spouse. I can go home at the end of the day and not say something stupid because... You know, I, I just have it together. I know what she needs, and she knows what I need, and there's no issues there. There's no miscommunication. I, I have the energy to, to provide what she needs and similar, and, and I'm going to do the perfect things as a father, and, and nothing's going to go wrong. The, the, the toast isn't going to get burnt because, hey, this is, this is great, and, we, and, and, and Eden is like that. Right? Perfect relationship with one another. Adam and Eve together, naked, unashamed, nothing to hide, 
joy, and life abundant. But more than that, they have unfiltered access to God himself. The creator, the one who speaks meaning into existence, they, they have unfiltered access and can walk in the cool of the day with him and ask him any question that they want and, and seek his face and talk to him like a friend and have his protection like a father. And we think, wow, if I was there, I would never want to leave. And then we run into Genesis chapter 3. You know, God has made this perfect utopian place and where right relationship with humans and himself is, is, is accessible. And then comes Satan to Eve in the, in the form of a serpent and says, and says did, did God really say that you can't eat from the fruit? She goes, well, no, 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 we, we can eat. We just can't eat from that, that one tree. And if we do, if we, if we even touch it, we would die. And Satan says, well, well, you know, I, I don't think that's true. I think God just wants to keep you down. Because he knows that when you eat that tree that you will have a knowledge and you will become like him. And Eve kind of looks at the tree and thinks, well, if, if, that's, if that's the result, I'll, I'll take it. And so she does. Instead of listening to this God who creates and brings purpose and is perfectly good, she listens to the serpent and takes the fruit and eats it and then passes it to her husband, who, by the way, is there sitting silent I love that laugh <laughs> because it's totally the way that it is, right? Like Adam is there. He knew God and his goodness. When Adam was lonely and didn't have anything, he knew that God would provide for him exactly what he needed in Eve. That when Adam was alone, that God came and said, it is not good for you to be alone. I will do what is good for you and I will find a partner for you that you can have this good relationship with. And instead of Adam speaking up and saying, hey, 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 no, 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 no. God knows what is good for us. He sits silently and then takes the fruit and eats it as well. And immediately, immediately, the effects of that disobedience are felt. They recognize their nakedness and they feel shame. So they create clothing for themselves out of the bushes around so that they can hide themselves from one another. And then when they hear God coming, the guilt of their disobedience overwhelms them and they hide from the God of the universe. This God who creates good things, who brings purpose and warmth and light and goodness. No, no, no. Now we need to hide ourselves from him because we have broken trust. And everything that was good is lost. So God comes and he, and he asks Adam, 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 where are you? Where are you? What's, what's going on? And immediately... 
Adam's response is, I'm so sorry, Lord. I have sinned against you, right? Oh, no, no, no. In true fashion, like my seven-year-old son, he did it, (laughs) right? Oh, no, 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 God, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. Right? She, she was the one. I mean, I was listening the whole time, but she was the one who tempted me. And, and if I remember, you gave her to me. So if, if I, like, I'm totally innocent here, God. It's, it's not my fault. It's her fault at best and possibly yours because you gave her to me. You could have made her different. The the absolute destruction of this relationship is totally clear. Everything is broken. And God's response in Genesis chapter 3, 14 to 19 is telling. So if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, it's in, it will be on the screen behind us. But if you have your Bible, we'll start in verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain You shall eat all of it, all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The weight of the curse is felt immediately. After cursing Satan to a life of animosity, he turns to Eve and says, your your childbearing will be painful. You see, I, I know that childbearing is painful, having watched three children be born, but it's more than simply the physical reality of birth that is being talked about here. The pain of infertility, the deep desire to have children which is ingrained in us from creation's purpose, not being fulfilled because of our physical capacity, the pain that that brings, 
the pain of miscarriage and stillbirth, the pain of infants suddenly dying unexpectedly, the pain of our children wandering away, of hating us, laughing at us, denying us. You see, the, the pain of childbearing, the joy of being fruitful and multiplying is now ruined. It is tainted. It is difficult. It is full of suffering. But not only that, now this perfect relationship, this joy that should come from two becoming one will be filled with animosity. Instead of one building up the other in complementary ways, now they will seek to figure out how to subvert or suppress. They will look for ways to have power over or manipulate and get their own way. Husbands will crush their wives and wives will undermine their husbands. Relational discord and divorce and abuse are rampant. This man and woman who are supposed to image, bear God himself now can barely stand one another. To Adam, though, he says that work will now be toil, will be hard and futile. The ground will now be filled with thorns and thistles, and anybody who enters the workforce knows this. That the victories of work are far outweighed by the weight of it. That as we till the ground and as we work diligently for it, there are more days than we wish there were of nothingness as a result. When the rains don't come and the sun beats too hot and our crops die, when the blue screen of death falls across our computers and we forgot to hit save, when our coworkers undermine all of the work that we have done, in team building, it is all toil. The dominion that we ought to have had over creation is now a tooth and nail fought reality for survival. And the eternal nature in which we were supposed to enjoy life with God is replaced with a march towards death. Instead of abundance and joy and eternity, we, we march towards an end. Day after day, we are reminded 
of the frailty of our bodies and the mist of our lives as we watch loved ones die and suffer, struggle against disease, and the curse is felt. But these are all just results of what actually happened the day that rebellion came into the world. See, later on in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 23 and 24, this is what God says, Therefore the Lord God sent him, Adam, out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. You see, what actually happened that day was that man separated himself from the life giver. And in so doing, God drove them out of his presence. And we are now wondering what will happen with humanity. How can they find their way back to Eden Is it possible to get back to life in God? And we find out very quickly that it doesn't seem to be that easy. We have Cain and Abel, the the sons of Adam and Eve, who who start to do what they're required to do. One, One raises livestock, one has a field and and they they till the ground and they bring sacrifices to God but Cain is jealous of his brother and that relationship that oneness that should be there is broken when Cain kills his brother Abel justifies it says I'm not my brother's keeper And it goes downhill from there just a little bit later on in that Lamech comes along and he gets gets hit by somebody and so so kills them. His response is, is violence and death. And it just spirals out of control until God looks upon the earth and all he sees is debauchery and evil and violence and sin and says, we need to start over. And isn't that a, a response of sin in our lives? Isn't that, isn't that something that when we recognize sin in our lives, we're like maybe if we just change everything, maybe if we move out of the community, maybe if we change our location, maybe if we change everything about us, we'll just move to a new place and start over, then maybe I can be good. Isn't that the case? And so God finds, finds a man who is righteous, this man, Noah, who follows God. And he says, okay, okay, God, I, I, I will listen to you. So God says, build a boat, and I'm going to destroy the earth. Now, now we need to understand that this, that this is actually a real faith moment for Noah. In that everybody around him is mocking him. So it's not like Noah is just 
you know, willy-nilly crazy guy who builds a boat and it just happens to be right. He listens to God and does this and people are mocking him, saying, what are you doing? Why are you building a boat in the middle of nowhere? So we should see that Noah is righteous, that he does trust God and he waits for God's command. And then he enters the ark and the flood rains come and destroys the entire earth. And there Noah is. And now we think, yes, humanity has a chance. Noah is righteous. He listens to God. He has the faith required. But the first thing that happens when dry ground comes is Noah gets drunk. And his son mocks him for it. And when Noah wakes up, his pride comes out and he curses his son. And the cycle starts all over again. This righteous man had sin inside of him that when it was threatened came out. And then we have society continuing to go and thinking, well, maybe I could be like God. And so they start to build a city so that they could reach the heights of God. And maybe we then can be God. And God confuses their languages and sends them out and sin continues and idolatry continues. So God says, okay, I guess, I guess I'll have to call somebody out myself. And so he calls out Abram. And he says, okay, I'm going to call him out of the land that he is in and I'm going to bring him to a new land and I'm going to promise him that I'm going to bless him, that he is going to have everything that he needs and that from him a nation will come. And I will bless all the nations through him. And Abram listens. He leaves everything behind and he goes to this land that he does not no, and in Genesis chapter 17, one, to do, 1 and 2, it says this, When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Abraham, if only you listen to my voice, if you listen to my voice and do what I say, I promise that I will make you a people and I will be with you, and I will do it. What's Abraham's response? He looks around, he sees a drought, he says, well, I don't think God knows what he's doing, so I'm going down to Egypt. When he gets there, he realizes, oh no, my beautiful wife is a bit of a problem, because a pharaoh's definitely going to want her, so what do I do with this? Do I trust God? Mm, that's not a good idea. I'm going to say she's my sister. And I'm going to allow her into Pharaoh's harem. And, and, and he only doesn't do this one time. No, no, no. This is two times. 
And then when God isn't coming through and God isn't doing what he expects, then, then he's like, well, maybe I should take matters into my own hands. You see, I've got this, this slave here. Maybe I can just start my own family with this slave. And then when she does have a child, he abuses this child, basically neglects them and leaves them on their own to die. And all of a sudden we realize, oh, a- Abraham, this one called of God is no better than Noah, is no better than Abraham. Or is no better than Adam. And his son Isaac is a liar just like he was. And his grandson, son Jacob, is a liar and a manipulator. Manipulating his brother's birthright out of his hands in his moment of desperation. And then deceiving his father for the blessing that ought to have been his brother Esau's. And his sons, the 12 sons that he had, were liars and murderers. They desired to murder their youngest brother out of jealousy, but instead sold him into slavery. And the spiral down into sin and debauchery continues until these people of God that he has set out are in Egypt in slavery. So maybe we come to this point in this story and we think to ourselves, well, the problem is is that they just didn't know what God required. They just were ignorant. And so Abraham lied not because he was malicious against God, because he didn't know that lying was wrong. All they needed was the law. So God sends Moses. And he delivers miraculously these people from slavery and things that they have never seen, could never imagine. They watched the seas part before them and them go through and Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up by it. There are vast sections of scripture that reflect on this praising God and his glorious work. And they come to the Mount Sinai and God rests on the mountain in such a way that the people are scared to come to it. Because of his presence, the holiness of God is there and they can, they can see it and they can feel it. And Moses goes up onto the mountain and this is what God says to him in Exodus 19, 5 to 6. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then he gives them the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God. Do not have any other gods before me. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't lie. Don't covet. Don't steal. Don't murder. And Moses comes down the mountain to find Israel worshiping a golden calf. And Israel is left sinning. And then we have the book of Joshua in this this conquest that only God could do. And they take the land that God has promised them 
and they sin and they sin and they sin and God gives them over to their sin and the people around them come in and take them over and they cry out to God, God have mercy on us and God sends them judges to bring them back, to redeem them, to show them mercy and to bring them back to himself and they have a brief moment of joy and then back to sin over and over and over again it's at this point that we think well maybe maybe what they need is not simply the law they need somebody to lead them in the way of the law maybe if they had a leader who was like God, who could show them the way, who could be an example, maybe then the people of God would be holy and righteous and then they could have right relationship with God. And so they say, we want a king. And they have Saul. Saul starts off okay, but his heart isn't in the right spot. And they quickly realize that, that, no, 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 Saul isn't right. And so Samuel comes along and anoints David as king. Why? Because he was a man after God's own heart. When Samuel comes to anoint David as king, God tells Samuel, do not look at outer appearance. Because I don't care about that. What I care about is what's in the heart. And so now we start to read the story and we think, oh, maybe there's hope here. Somebody who's got actually the heart of God who has his desires and his disposition, and he hears the law of God, and he's given the power required, maybe then the people of God will look like they're supposed to, and we can get back to that Edenic state, that we can get back to that right relationship. And so God makes a covenant with David and says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And there is hope here, isn't there? Maybe this is it. We have a king who loves God and has the authority to make it happen. And then David looks over the wall and sees Bathsheba. And invites her in. And kills her husband. And tries to cover it up. And then his son Solomon comes along and, yes, builds the temple and has this glorious moment of asking God for wisdom instead of power and money, and he gets all of them because of his wisdom. But at the end of his life, he has hundreds of concubines and hundreds of wives who have changed his heart and he worships idols instead of the one true God. And his son, Rehoboam, causes a civil war to break out and splits the nation of Israel, this people of God that were supposed to be unified and represent God. He splits them into the north and the south, Israel and Judah. And then Joash comes along, a king who rebuilds God's temple with just God's mercy and grace on him, but instead of 
elevating God's prophets, he kills them. They weren't saying what he wanted them to say, and so he slaughters them. And then we have Hezekiah, this king who saw a miracle of all miracles. When he is surrounded in Jerusalem by King Sennacherib of Assyria, where he, like, he cannot count the number of Assyrians that are sieging his city, and he thinks things are hopeless, and the prophet Isaiah comes to him and says, let's pray. Let's, let's seek God who can do miracles, who created the world, who has brought us in here, who's parted the seas, who parted the Jordan, who made Israel a nation. Let's beseech him. Let's talk to him, and let's see if he can do something. And so Hezekiah does, and in this great moment of, of faith, he trusts God, and overnight God kills 185,000 Assyrians, and they flee. And Hezekiah has a new lease on life. And a lot of us are sitting here thinking, well, if only I had tangible proof, then I would obey God, then I would listen, then I would cast the sin out of my life, if only that kind of thing would happen. But if you read on, Hezekiah at the end of his life trusts his gold and his possessions instead of the God who delivers. And we are left with the crushing reality that people are hopeless. That it does not matter if you start over or if you simply hear the voice of God or you know the rules of God or you have a leader who can lead you towards God, you will fail. And we are stuck with the realization that we need someone better than Noah. Someone better than Abram. Someone better than Moses. Someone better than David. And we look at our own lives and we think, I'm toast. Like, I, I want Eden. I can see the discord between my life and what Eden looks like. I can see where I ought to be better, but I can't do it. I try so hard to pull myself up by my own bootstraps, and I can't. I try and be the dad I ought to be. I try and be the employee I ought to be. I try and be the wife I ought to be. I try and be the father I ought to be. I try and be the husband I ought to be. I try to be the church member that I ought to be, the friend that I ought to be. And all I can see is the mistakes and failures in my life. I am lost. All we see is we, we see ourselves in the Old Testament. You can open any passage. You read David, you're like, yep, that's me. You read Abraham, you're like, yeah, that's me. You read any one of the kings, the rebellious kings, and you say, yeah, that's me. I would rather take gold over a God who delivers.
I would rather take the fleeting experience of sex with a woman who is beautiful over a God who promises a kingdom that will last forever. And if it's up to me, I'll take the sin. The Apostle Paul, when he reflected on this in Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 10, said this. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before them. And I read that and I think, that's me. Like if I'm honest, that's, that's me. Oh, how easy it is for me to take, my, to take God's spot in my life. I love the sin in my life. Don't you? And I think I am hopeless. You know the beauty of God though? Is that even in his curse, he brings hope. That even in our catastrophic failures, he brings light. You notice in Genesis chapter 1, or in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he curses the serpent, he says, you will, you will bruise her heel, but her seed will crush your head. Who is that? Who is that? Oh, my, my heart wants to know who, who is that that can do that for me. Because every time I encounter Satan, I get crushed. And then, and then we move forward to Abraham and we think, who is this nation that God is making? Oh God, please let me be a part of that nation. How, how do I get to be a part of the people of God? 
And and we see in the covenant of God saying, I will make you a people and I will give you the ability to to follow my rules. Well, how, how, God, how will you allow me to follow these rules? How will you allow me to live up to the standard that you have set when I just break them constantly? How will you do that? Who will do that for me? How, How can I make that happen? And who is this person that will sit on the throne of David forever? Please, please, God, show me who is this person. Who can save me from my hopeless state? And then comes John the Baptist. And he remembers Isaiah chapter 40 a voice of one calling in the desert makes straight in the wilderness a highway for our God every valley shall be raised up every mountain and hill made low the rough ground shall become level the rugged places a plain and the glory of the Lord will be revealed For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then Jesus in Luke chapter 5 picks up Isaiah himself and says, I have come to set the captive free. I have come to bring healing to the sick. And this scripture, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. See, the fall is and bleeds through everything. And it finds its reality in my own heart. And if I look to myself, if we look to ourselves, we are finished. Over and over and over and over again. Not simply in scripture, but in our own lives. We prove this to be true every day. That we know the good we ought to do and we don't do it. But God has provided hope. John the Baptist's message was, before Jesus, before the reality of redemption was repent, turn back to God, recognize your sin and say, I know that I cannot meet up, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the beauty of it is, is that we have that mercy in Jesus. It's that On the cross, the wrath that we should receive, the penalty that we should receive was given to him. And the righteousness that he has, now we have. And we can stand in the presence of God that the flaming sword that stood before the tree of life is removed and we can have life. If only we would take it.
Oh, I pray that you would repent. That if you followed Jesus for your entire life, that you would still look at your sin and you would turn to God and say, Oh, Lord, I believe. Help me with my disbelief. And if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior, but you know the sin in your own heart, that you would turn to a God that from the very beginning that said there are consequences to your sin created a way for you to have relationship with him again? Would you trust him? The consequences of the curse are so real and evident in our lives, it almost doesn't even need saying, but there is hope in Jesus. Which then leads us to this incredible symbol that we have here of taking communion and understanding what it is that Jesus has actually bought for us. So I'd invite uh, the, those that are serving to come forward and a worship team to come up. Friends, we, 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 we participate in communion on a regular basis because because we recognize that we are so broken that we need Jesus. And that in, in that reality, we understand that the cost was eternal, was invaluable. That the Son of God himself had to come and sacrifice his own body and his own blood so that we could have that relationship. That he had to live the life that we couldn't live. That he had to die the death that there is no way we could possibly bear. And then he miraculously rose again so that we have hope for a future with God. And we can celebrate that reality today. Because he lives, we can live. Because he died, we don't have to fear death. Because his blood covers us, we can approach the throne of God as our father. And so we should celebrate what he has done. And so that's what we do. So we're just going to sing a song. These elements will be passed out and then we'll partake together. Okay?